Last month, I watched this series called When They See Us. It was a Netflix series, a four-part series that some 23 million people watched in the month of June. And it chronicles what happened to the group known as the Central Park Five. These were five teenagers, black teenagers, who were arrested and convicted for the rape and attempted murder of a white female jogger in Central Park. And I was mesmerized by this series, not only because of the horror of this story, but also because of the amazing acting of these young teenagers as they played a very difficult role. And I only knew the basic outlines of this story, and this, this series helped fill them in. And if you don't know what happened to the Central Park Five, they were, they were eventually exonerated when the man who was guilty of this crime converted to faith and made his confession to the police. But what I found amazing about this series was the interview that Oprah did with the survivors of this, um, this trauma, these five men who were exonerated. And as they came together years later, I was overwhelmed with sorrow at the brokenness of their lives. These men had, had won a lawsuit against the city of New York, but still their lives were broken and fractured and brought me and my wife to tears when we watched it, as well as the audience that was watching it as well. It was really sad. And you see something like that, and you have to ask the question, was justice served? I mean, sure, they got money, but their lives were broken. And to see a justice system that was broken and twisted facts in order to arrive at a conviction just left me shaking my head. No doubt you're familiar with the quote by Martin Luther King Jr., who said, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And that's an inspiring quote, and it has moved many people to action. But is that true? And who knows if that's true? Many of us were mesmerized by the arrest of Jeffrey Epstein, the international financier who was involved in an international sex trafficking scandal, who trafficked young ladies to rich and powerful people around the world. And he was arrested. And while he was in jail, he died under suspicious conditions. And when the victims thought that they were going to get their day in court, that was suddenly taken from them. And one of the victims said this, we have to live with the scars of his actions for the rest of our lives while he will never face the consequences of the crimes he committed. What do we do when it seems like people escape justice? What do we do when we look at this world and we wonder about humanity's inhumanity to one another? What do we do when we're left shaking our head at how, how we vandalize this world and wonder if it's ever going to be set to right? What do we do when we we just get so overwhelmed and exhausted with the constant barrage of negative news and seeming injustices everywhere. We ask the question, where is God in all of this? If you ever asked those kind of questions, if you ever found yourself wondering about these issues of justice and injustice, then you're going to want to hear what the sage of Ecclesiastes has to say. Speaking in the voice of Solomon, he is speaking about some very hard issues in life. Questions about meaning, the significance of work, justice, injustice, and what happens to us when we die. 
So we're going to call our study today The Long Arc of the Universe. And we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 16 through 22. And so if you would, would you just take a moment and pray with me as we ask the Lord to teach us this day, as we look at this ancient wisdom and seek to apply it to our lives. Let's pray. Lord, we find ourselves living in a world that is very broken. We find ourselves bombarded with news about injustices being played out everywhere. Our eyes have seen things that we wish we couldn't have seen. Our ears have heard news that has just broken our hearts. And we are often left wondering about questions of justice and injustice. And we have questions about you in the midst of this. How does this all fit together? What are you doing? What are you going to do about this? As we open this ancient book of Ecclesiastes and listen to the wisdom of this wise King Solomon who lived before Jesus, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear what he is saying? And help us as as we do week in, week out, to see how what this place in the scriptures have to say about Jesus himself and the good news of all that you have done and have promised to do in him. So be with us this morning as we open this text. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if we've been reading from the beginning to this place in Ecclesiastes, we would have just passed the place where Solomon has said, God will make everything beautiful in its time. And he just talked about how there's a time for this and a a time for that, and God himself will make everything beautiful in its time. And then we get to this place in verse 16, where the sage says, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. Let's look at how this is just structured for us. He, he begins by talking about what he sees under the sun. In other words, when he looks out in this world, there are several places where he would expect to find one thing, and he finds another. In the place of justice, there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. So let's just think about these two places he's looking at. In the place of justice to begin with. Many cultures around the world have this symbol of Lady Justice, who has the scales of justice perfectly balanced, who has a blindfold across her eyes so that she doesn't see bribes. She holds a sword in her hand, and in many of these pictures, the sword is is cutting off the head of a snake, which is representative of deception and, and lies. We want justice, and we ache when justice is not carried out. In fact, when Solomon reigned, he reigned over the kingdom of Israel, And Israel was set apart to be a city on the hill, to be a light to the nations about what a just and perfect society would look like. In fact, I was reading this past week in the book of Zechariah. And here the Lord points this out for his people. Thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. And let none of you devise evil against one another in your heart. But... They refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law 
and the words the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit. The city that was supposed to be set apart as an example of righteousness, an example of justice, had problems with that. (laughs) That's putting it in a mild way. They hardened their hearts. They refused to render true judgments. And so Solomon, in looking out, even at that stage in his kingdom, saw in many places of justice there was what he described as wickedness. But he also says, in the place of righteousness. And many commentators agree that he's, he's drawing a distinction here. The place of justice was in the place where the elders sat at the, the city gates. And there they would take, uh, hear cases that were t- uh, taken to them, and they would render their judgments. But in the place of righteousness is describing the place where people learned about God and his righteous ways. About where people would come together before the priests and before the prophets, and before the teachers of the law, to learn how to live. And yet, over and over again, instead of leading people to God, the religious leaders would lead people in new ways of sin and rebellion against the Lord. They were to be the thermometer, so to speak, of the nation. But they set the temperature at a different place. And we still see this today, don't we? In those places of righteousness, where people should know better, we see wickedness. I mean, many of us are very familiar with the Roman Catholic scandal where a number of priests were discovered to have, to have hurt children. And they were simply reassigned to other parishes. In fact, just last November, the USA Today newspaper ran a review of more than 1,200 priests and Catholic brothers and Catholic school officials who were accused of sexual abuse. And they found that most moved on with their lives with little oversight or accountability. And we look at that and say, how can that be in the place of righteousness where people should know better? There is wickedness. But even on the Protestant side of the equation, you remember when the Houston Chronicle published its front page uh, expose of countless Southern Baptist pastors who had been accused of sexually abusing children and your heart just breaks. How can that be? How can it be that in a place where there should be righteousness, that there is wickedness? That's the question Solomon is asking. That's what he's wrestling with. My friends, you and I are living in a time of of unprecedented collapse of confidence in our institutions, of both justice and even religious institutions. We're jaded. We're cynical. We're we're skeptical. And we're at the point, I know many of us, where when we hear another news story, it doesn't shock us anymore. Isn't that sad? For many people, this is enough to say, I don't want anything to do with God, or even to say, I don't believe there's a God. If, If there's so much wickedness going on in this world, how can there be a God? C.S. Lewis, the Oxford professor, himself wrestled with this very issue. And in Mere Christianity, he talked about his wrestling with this issue of, of justice and injustice in the existence of God. And this is what he said. My argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? When I was comparing this universe with um, What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Of course, I could have given up 
my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my arguments against God collapsed too. For the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust. Not simply that it did not happen to please my private fancies. Consequently, atheism turned out to be too simple. I mean, here's C.S. Lewis as he's wrestling with the issues of the existence of God and faith and justice and injustice. Thought at first the existence of injustice and wickedness was a reason to call into question the existence of God. But when he arrived at saying God doesn't exist, he realized there went his standard as well. And so he found himself inching along toward belief in God. And so Solomon, in saying that when he looked and saw in the place of justice, wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, wickedness, he's really saying what we all are saying when we see things like this. Things are supposed to be different. And so Solomon says this, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. And here we see the echo of what he said in the section before us. There is a time for everything. There's a time to be born and a time to die. There's a time for war and a time for peace. And here as he thinks through the issue of the sovereignty of God, he says there will be a time. There will be a time when God judges the righteous and the wicked. Verse 18, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. This is interesting. This is not what we would think Solomon would say about humans. And that phrase, children of man, is literally the sons of Adam. So he said in my heart, with regard to the sons of Adam, that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. What does he mean by that phrase, that they themselves are but beasts? I mean, Solomon knows the story of creation. He knows that God created humanity in his image. He knows that he has crowned humanity with honor and glory and has given him dominion over the works of his hands. In other words, God entered into a partnership with humanity to rule this world in righteousness, in justice. But here Solomon is thinking about something else. He says, they themselves are but beasts. In, in the Hebrew, there's an alliteration that would make even the, the most... Um, cherished fans of, of rhyme proud. Shehem, bahema, hema, lahem. That they would know that they themselves are but beasts. What's he talking about here? Well, there is an interesting strand throughout Scripture that describes humans as beasts when they act inhumanely towards one another. Usually this is when rulers abuse their power, even to the point of executing and killing people unjustly. They are called beasts. Humans can act like beasts in many ways, but that's actually not what Solomon is thinking about here. And we know that because in the very next word, he says, he, he uses the word for, he's connecting it. God is testing humanity that they themselves might know that they are beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beast for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from dust, and to dust all return. There's a lot packed in here. Let's, let's break it apart just a little bit. 
Solomon says, what happens to the children of man, that is the sons of Adam, and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. This is what Solomon means when he says that God is testing us that we may know that we are beasts, that we are like beasts, that we are, in one sense, no better than beasts. Remember, he's talking about existence under the sun, east of Eden, in this fallen world. As one dies, so dies the other. And he says they all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. Your pet has the breath of life in it. We have the breath of life in us. And for all our scurrying about, for all our, our intellect, for all our advances in technology, do we have any advantage over the beasts in the end? Solomon says no. He says all is vanity. Remember that word vanity is that word that we've been seeing over and over again. It literally means smoke or mist or vapor. Life is a vapor. And he says, all go to one place, beast and humans alike. All are from dust, and to dust all return. And here, the sage is riffing off the book of Genesis. Back in Genesis, we know that the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. In other words, when God formed Adam to be a representative of humanity, he formed him from the dust of creation and breathed in him the breath of life. But with our rebellion, we're still tied to the dust. Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve squandered the position that they had, being priests and king of this creation, they were expelled and told, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. My friends, this is true of each and every one of us. It's true of you, and it's true of me. Forever many days we're granted to live upon the face of this earth. What is true about us is that we will one day return to dust. And this is one of the ways in which God tries us, tests us, to help us to understand our mortality. Everyone, Solomon sees, returns to the dust. And so it slays, or it ought to slay, the pride of man. Even when we write poems saying, I am the master of my fate and I am the captain of my soul, death makes a counterclaim. And death is one for one in its victory over the pride of mankind. As Solomon will say later in this book, no man has the power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. Just like we didn't appoint the day of our birth, we don't appoint the day of our death. And for all our pride and hubris and advances in technology and intellectual prowess, death still wins in the end. Psalm 39, man in his pomp will not remain. He is like a beast that perishes. This is what Psalm is wanting us to understand. The just and the unjust will die. The righteous and the unrighteous will die. 
just like the beasts. And everywhere we look, when we see death, we are reminded of our own. Matthew McAuliffe, in his book, Remembered Death, had this piercing line. Each death implies our own. Which brings to the fore the question, and then what? And then what? And Solomon answers this question in a surprising way. This is what he says in verse 21. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? Solomon, as he looks at this world, as he sees men and women dying, as he sees beasts dying, he knows they have the breath of life, but he asks the question, who knows at the end of the day if the breath or the spirit of man goes up and the spirit of the beast goes to the earth? Who knows? Who can possibly know? You can't run a scientific experiment on this. You can't go ahead into death and come back and report. I like what Philip Ryken said in his commentary. He said, we know that one day the time will come for us to die. The question is, will we live again? I mean, that's the most important question we can ask, right? The few short days of our life. And Solomon says, who knows? Solomon believes that God will come and bring his kingdom. And there's a sense in which he believes that God's going to set everything right. But here he just lets the uncomfortable question linger for the moment. Who knows? And so this is how Solomon ends this section. Verse 22, So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? And here Solomon lands at a place that he lands so often in this book, in the midst of all the mysteries of existence, in the midst of all kinds of unanswered questions. He says at the end of the day, life is a gift. And it is to be enjoyed. And we are to rejoice in the things that our hands find to do. Because this is a gift for God. And he says, who can bring him to see what will be after him? In other words, when the days of my pilgrimage are done, who can help me see what will come next? What will happen on the face of this earth? He says, enjoy life. But here's the question. How? Can we enjoy life unless we know that death is not the end of life? He's asking us to wrestle with some big questions here, isn't he? Who knows, but enjoy your life. But how can we enjoy our life unless we know that death is not the end of life? And so Solomon, living before the time of Christ and all his brilliance and all his wisdom, with people from around the world coming and paying him tribute to hear from his wisdom, can only take us so far. As divinely inspired as he was for his moment in time, he can only give us so much wisdom. And so we're left asking the question, who knows? Who knows? 
as wise as Solomon was. We need someone greater than Solomon, with a greater wisdom from Solomon, who can give us the answers we long for. As insightful as Solomon was into human nature, we need someone greater than Solomon, who can actually do something about human nature. As upfront as Solomon was about the reality of death, we need someone greater than Solomon who could actually do the unimaginable, conquer death. And so my friends, when we ask the question, who knows, the answer to this question is found in the good news of Jesus Christ. There are massive implications for understanding that this one greater than Solomon came and lived and died among us. And as the gospel tells us, rose again three days later. And so just a few implications of this, my friends. The first implication is that we need to realize that in Jesus, we have God's answer to the problem of wickedness. You see, when Jesus was arrested, he was arrested illegally. And when he stood before the place of justice, there was wickedness. Pilate himself, in questioning Jesus, said, I find in this man that he did nothing wrong. And yet he still caved to the demands of those who stood in the place of righteousness. In the place of righteousness, the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes, the teachers of the law, all used their power to get Pilate to cave, telling him that he lets Jesus go. He's no friend of Caesar. And so that even when Pilate knew that Jesus did nothing wrong, and even when the religious leaders had to, to bring false witnesses to testify against Jesus and utter lies, in the place of justice, in the place of righteousness, there was wickedness. And so they crucified him. And as Peter, the apostle of Jesus, would later tell those in Jerusalem, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, this one we proclaim. Peter would later write, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Not to Pilate, not to Caesar, not to the religious leaders of his day, but he entrusted himself to God who judges justly. And yet Jesus ended up on the cross. But this was all according to the divine plan. As God so worked in and amongst the evil and wickedness of mankind, to bring about his purposes, when they nailed Jesus to the cross, God was at work bringing about out of the worst evil committed, the greatest good, the salvation of the world. We're told by the prophet Isaiah, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray and have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In that moment, 
all the injustice and unrighteousness and wickedness that you and I have done was placed upon Jesus. And there God condemned what we have done in his flesh. And at the appointed time, three days later, brought Jesus back from the grave. And so as his apostles went forth proclaiming the resurrection of the dead, they said things like this. Jesus is the Savior of the world. A title, interestingly enough, that the Caesar and the Roman Empire took upon itself. Jesus is the Savior of the world. So in Jesus, we have the answer to the problem of wickedness. God himself in the person of Jesus took it upon himself so one day he could do away with wickedness without doing away with us. But here's another implication that we should embrace. We need to recognize that in Jesus, we have God's declaration of the death of death. We ask the question before, who knows? And in Jesus, we have the answer. Jesus in his life made claims like this. I am the resurrection and the life. That is, I am the one who brings back from the dead life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall live. Do you believe this? Jesus asks. And then after he was crucified and brought back from the dead, the apostle Paul said this. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. That reference should be 1 Timothy chapter 1. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, did what Solomon couldn't do, brought life, that is eternal life, and immortality to light through the gospel. In Jesus, we have that declaration of the death of death in Jesus. So when we ask the question, who knows? Jesus knows. And in Jesus, we know. My friends, here's the third and final implication. We need to realize that in Jesus, we have God's promise of ultimate justice. Where Solomon had a conviction of this, we now have the certainty of it. Solomon would, by the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, say this in his final sentence. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. In other words, there is a day coming when there will be perfect justice. The Apostle Paul, when he visited Athens, after he himself had been converted and went around spreading the gospel, he ended up in the place, which was called the birthplace of philosophy. And there he met the Stoic and Epicurean philosophers. And he entered to debate with them and explain to them the gospel. And he was actually brought to the Areopagus, which was the place of trial, the same place where Socrates was brought to trial and sentenced to death. And here Paul stands up and he says this, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. In other words, with Jesus, we have God's answer to the problem of human wickedness. With Jesus, we have God's answer to the problem of a death. But also with Jesus, we have God's promise of ultimate justice because he has set a day in which he will judge this world by the only righteous person, the only just person who has ever lived, his son, Jesus Christ. And you and I will stand before him 
one day. And he's given assurance of this by bringing Jesus himself back from the dead. I love what David Gibson in his book, Living Life Backwards, which is a commentary on Ecclesiastes, which is exactly what Solomon's going to want us to do by the end of what he has to say, is to, to take his wisdom and live life backwards, bring it back into our life. But anyway, Gibson says this, our longing for justice is hardwired. The world is not meant to be like this. Will there ever be a time for justice? The answer is yes. God will retrieve every single injustice and every single time and every single activity, every single deed that has ever broken his holy law and tarnished his beautiful world and damaged his image bearers. Every one of these moments is answerable to God. Every tear and every sighing sorrow for my wrongs, whether through the things I have done or had done to me, each one will be sought out by God, who is perfect justice, truth, mercy, and love. God will make sure of it. And as the legendary J.I. Packer has said, God's own appointment has made Jesus Christ inescapable. He stands at the end of life's road for everyone without exception. And so my friends, the arc of the moral universe is long and it bends toward justice precisely because it bends toward Jesus. And that, my friends, is good news.